Amen. Thanks, Tony. Uh, so my name is Jonathan. As Tony uh, just mentioned, one of the pastors here. Uh, I didn't introduce myself earlier, so I apologize for that. Uh, and <clears throat> on the insert in your worship folder, you'll see on one side a lot of scripture. Don't let that deter you, scare you. I'm not going to read it all. Uh, we are going to reference it all and kind of use it all. Uh, and then on the other side is the outline. But we're finishing up a series today uh, that we have entitled Gospel Fluency uh, the last three weeks. Uh, next week with one service, we're starting a whole new series. And don't you wish you knew what it was going to be on? So you have to come back next week to find out. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag. Um, but today we are finishing up Gospel Fluency. What we've been talking about is that becoming fluent requires knowledge. So we looked at doctrine, gospel doctrine. It requires time, renewal, and a regular rehearsal of the gospel. It requires practice, that is becoming a certain type of person, all while being immersed in the kind of community that knows and speaks the gospel into everyday life, into everything. The kind of community that knows and speaks the gospel every day into everything so that all the parts of our lives are growing up into Christ and we are eventually transformed and submitted to him. It's a process, right? Long process, but a good one nonetheless. Today, we're kind of piggybacking really on last week, but talking a little bit more um, broadly. Uh, and what we have said is, by way of reminder, if you've been at Redeemer for a long time or uh, Maybe this is an introduction if you're new to the church. The gospel is our curriculum. We say that again and again. The gospel is our curriculum. And so if that's the case, if we are to be the conduits for the power of God flowing through us to the geography that God has placed us in, then these case studies is what we're calling them today. Uh, examples, if you will, where we regularly experience trouble or struggles. These are great opportunities for us to troubleshoot the gospel. And obviously sermons are only meant to get you started. They're a very small part of the week. The real work will take place over coffee and meals and back porches with friends and community groups. But we really do desire that we as a church would increasingly be skilled at resourcing ourselves in the gospel. That we would become more skilled at using this curriculum, as we call it, in the trenches of life. That's where we live anyway, right? So bringing it into those trenches is part of what I want to try to do today by tackling or looking at these three areas that are on this outline. There are three areas that, in my experience, they regularly hit home for us because we're constantly living in the realities and the conflicts that these three areas expose inside of us and outside of us. They're pretty constant for most of us, right? So the question is, how do we become more gospel fluent in embracing our humanity that's that first point there, fluent in, how do we become more fluent in our finitude, applying the gospel in uh, our finitude. In family dynamics, especially in marriage and parenting, which is the fa family fluency piece. And then lastly, in relational conflict, because unless you plan to go move to the desert, you are going to have other human beings in your life and they're going to sin against you. I hope that's not a newsflash for anybody. Okay, so you've got to become skilled 
at applying the gospel or fluent in the gospel in the practice of forgiveness. And it's a great place to do that. So these correspond to the three points on the outline. I'm not, as I said, reading all these scriptures, but if you will look on the, uh, well, you can be on the screen behind me or on the insert. I'm going to read a couple of them just to orient us here, okay? So first from Genesis chapter 1, look there. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then jump down a little bit. Behold, Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And then skip down a little further. I'm not going to read that uh, long passage from Genesis 50. We'll come back to it. Uh, If you jump all the way to the end, Luke 17. Sorry, Joe, I'm jumping around here. Pay attention to yourselves. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Uh, Would you say with me, as we say each week, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So we're going to look at these three points, uh, these three areas in a turn here, and they kind of correspond. We'll, we'll go through the, the scriptures on the back. Uh, you'll see kind of how they fit together here. But the question to begin here is, do you ever look at the calendar, your calendar for the coming week, maybe on Sunday nights, maybe that's when you do, but do you ever look at that calendar and go, how on earth is all this going to come together? How on earth am I going to try to get all this? Am I crazy for trying to get all this done? It's never going to happen. If you look at that passage that I just read from Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, uh, and then uh, I'll reference this passage from the Gospel of John in just a moment, but if you look at those two, Christianity really does affirm the goodness of being made, of being dependent, of being creaturely, because we are created. It says it right there, page one, chapter one, verse 27. So by definition, We are finite. We're limited. We're vulnerable. Now, just as a reminder, moms, thank you. Because you all realize without moms, this room is empty. Like there's nobody in here. We we are, every one of us, given life. We don't get to decide our family, our year of our birth, our state, our city, our hospital. None of it. We're given life. We're made, we're created, we're dependent and weak, and we often forget that. You know how I know that we often forget that? Because we seem to continually want to sign ourselves up for too much, and then we're shocked when we feel stressed and exhausted from signing ourselves up for too much. Or maybe we're not shocked. I mean, maybe we've come to accept that it is what it is, and this is just how I live my life. But if we're honest... There's often this longing, this nagging, right? Where do you find yourself lamenting more? And by that I mean, you would say, I wish I had more 
time. I wish I had more fill in the blank. I wish I did more or could do more fill in the blank. I wish I had done enough fill in the blank. Where do you want more? Where are you longing for more? And oftentimes that's what is pushing us, right? How do you solve it? Well, American culture is full of organization techniques. So it's one thing we love, right? But, but no matter how many books you read, no matter, how many, no matter how many TED Talks you watch, there's no way to add more than 24 hours to the day. You know, you can't do it. There's 24 hours. That's it. Despite what we try, you can't add more. And you got to fit in stupid sleep on top of that. I mean, who has time to sleep? Well, sleep is a great reminder from God that you are created. Now, I've listed this book for you under the resources uh, from, uh, by Kelly Capick called You're Only Human. And Dr. Capick teaches at uh, Covenant College. And uh, he, this book in particular, for me, was so, so powerful. I highly, highly recommend it. I, I recommend everything that he writes. He's great. But he says this as he begins this book. Creaturely finitude is less an idea we discover than a reality we run into. When the brokenness of the world hits our human limitations, it often strains our emotions and our will and our understanding past their abilities. We're exposed, right? And this is why from the first page of the Bible, we are told that we are made. Do you know what the Bible on the first page or the second page says you're made from? Dust. Right? And yet, God says that was good work. And so your limits, your createdness is a good thing. It's a blessing. It's not a curse. But embracing that truth is so hard, right? We bristle against it. And we come by it honestly because just two pages over in Genesis, we read it a minute ago, uh, Dr. Capick says this about Genesis chapter 1. He says, The serpent encourages the man and woman to imagine they can and they should no more. They should be more. He implies that the divinely given limits are a fault to be overcome rather than a beneficial gift to be enjoyed. See, the knowledge tree that they eat from was about gaining a mastery of everything. Doesn't that sound great? To have a mastery of everything? But instead of a mastery, what happens to them? They get mastered. They get mastered by shame. They get mastered by seeking to hide their creature status. They're embarrassed. They're exposed. They go, oh no. And then they start hiding. And we've been doing it ever since, right? We hide, we lie, we pose, we project, all in an effort to overcome our limits or hide our limits or to figure out a way around our limits. But the gospel is the paradigm for fluency even in this. The gospel should impact what makes it on your calendar. The gospel should impact what more you most need. The gospel should impact even how organized, obsessively organized you are, right? Because loving the restrictions of being human is something that Jesus himself knows and experienced firsthand. That's why that passage from John, or the gospel of John, is there uh, for you. John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14 are the two listed, and Here's what John says. He says, the eternal, in the first verse, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He says, the eternal becomes creaturely and temporal in verse 14. The word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. Now, just for, friend, just for grins, this is a freebie. How did Jesus' humanity come into the world? Does anybody know? How did Jesus' humanity come into the world? Through his mom. So do you realize that without a mom, we have no Jesus? And just that very fact is a, a, a confirmation that God embraces the temporal, vulnerable, dependent nature of created stuff. The gospel says you're far more loved than you can possibly imagine, so loved that Jesus couldn't remain at a distance, but he entered human flesh, vulnerable and finite, and he did it to rescue us. So who can say God doesn't love his world? Even in the brokenness, God declares the goodness of what he has made in sending Jesus to become really and truly human. So the next time you're tempted to ask yourself, go, go, back, go back to the beginning. Consider, consider this. Jesus Christ embraced the limitedness of humanity. He couldn't heal everyone in a particular day. They had to close up shop at some point. You realize that? At some point in the day, he did not heal people 24 hours a day, seven days a week until he got to the cross. He embraced and actually enjoyed, we find, the limits. And he's trying to get the disciples to as well. He says, come away, let's have some rest. He needed rest. Because embracing his finitude forced him to cling to his father and find rest. And so the same is true for us. He's modeling what it means to truly be human for us. So Jesus, as the enfleshed Son of God, is the reason why that Martin Luther King Jr. quote there is true. We need to give ourselves permission to be disappointed, accept disappointments, but the promise of resurrection allows us to not lose hope. It, in, in fact, it causes us to abound with hope. And so the gospel really does give us the tools to embrace the places where we find ourselves coming right up against our limitedness and what in the world do we do about it. But not only that, it helps us with family. We have lots of children here. If you are new to Redeemer, you probably have seen them. Um, there's lots of children, which means we have lots of families. And there's a variety of experiences some uh, good, some bad amongst our families and children, but whatever those experiences are, the question has to be asked, how does our gospel fluency impact those relationships? How does our fluency lead to flourishing? Because our desire for you in your marriage and parenting is that fluency in the gospel would lead you to be flourishing in those relationships. So let's use the curriculum. Faithful, gospel-fueled parenting is predicated on faithful gospel-fueled marriages. In fact, if you're married, the marriage relationship has to be the most important in your life. Has to be more important than your children. Has to be more important than your friendships. And to the degree you are becoming fluent in marriage, that will spill over into other relationships, especially into parenting. And when I say fluent in marriage, I mean fluent in practicing the gospel in marriage. Why is that? Well, marriage precedes parenting, right? Which means we practice the gospel with our spouse first, and hopefully we got a little practice under our belt before we start bringing children into the world. We got to practice the gospel with them. Moms, amen? 
wow, okay, I thought there would be more to that, but maybe all the moms got it together in here. That's great. Um, need some more challenges. The challenges compound as you have to start practicing this, and then as they get older and older, and you practice it more and more and more, and then the more children you have, the more compounded it gets, right? It's very, very difficult. The two passages that are on the insert for this case study, uh, if you will, are Psalm 127 and Ephesians 5. The psalm helps us answer the question, what are children for? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever thought about that? What are children for? What is marriage for? Well, that's Ephesians 5. Both of these passages assume a paradigm, a gospel paradigm, through which we can view marriage and parenting. Parents, moms especially, though, see if this resonates with you. This quote uh, says, when you have children, they're in a state of dependency. They have so many needs. They can't stand on their own. And they will not just grow out of their dependency automatically. The only way, the only way your children will grow beyond their dependency into self-sufficient adults is for you to essentially abandon your independence for 20 years or so. So if you're at the beginning of this, uh, you know, I hate to break it to you, but it's, you got about 20 years ahead of you. Those of you that have 20-year-olds plus are thinking, they're just getting, I mean, no, no, no. That's maybe halfway through. Maybe when they're 40, they, they you know. Uh, but you essentially have to abandon your independence. And unless you sacrifice much of your freedom and a good bit of your time, your children will not grow up healthy and equipped to function in the world on their own. Think about it this way. You can make the sacrifice or they're going to make the sacrifice. It's them or you. Either you suffer temporarily and in a redemptive way or they're going to suffer tragically in a wasteful and destructive way. And here's where this statement that I printed for you on the insert from Tim Keller comes in. He says, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Parents, you have to be substituting yourself, your convenience, your happiness, your joy into and for that of your children. Just like Jesus, we lose our independence to care for the dependent. We sacrifice our strength and time for the sake of the weak and the needy. We substitute our convenience and ease for the hardships and interruptions that children bring. And Jesus did the same for us. But where does it go wrong? Because it often does, right? Where are we tempted to forget the gospel? Psalm 127 helps us. What does it say? The psalmist says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. So your children did not come, you know, sometimes we joke that this is the spawn of Satan or something like that. You know, if they're having a particularly bad day, maybe you've never said that about your kids, but I have mine. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some insight into my heart. But children are from the Lord, the Bible says, right? That is a good thing. They originate with him. He creates them. They're his idea. So however many you have, how God has made each of them individually in all of their unique glory and dignity is from him. But then the psalmist says, children are from the Lord, and, and then he gives their purpose. What are they? What's their purpose? They are, yes. They are arrows. They glorify God in their arrowness. What are arrows? Weapons. And so our job 
is to sharpen and strengthen them so we can launch them. The enemy has arrows too, you know. Paul says as much in Ephesians 6 when he's talking about the armor of God. He says, you know, we, we, we better protect ourselves with the shield of faith against the darts of the evil one. He has arrows, and rest assured, he ain't afraid to use them. And so if you are not raising up your children to launch them, then it's not going to go well. Children are not our personal pet projects. We do not polish them and protect them so we can show them off in a museum. Because parenting is less like a Westminster dog show and more like Army Ranger Training School. You are raising up arrows. And not just to keep in your quiver so that you can take one out every so often and look at it and go, wow, this is a great looking arrow, ain't it? You take the arrows out of the quiver, you draw them back, and you fire them directly at the enemy. Some of the best parenting advice uh, my wife Jamie and I ever got was this. Uh, We were told, just as Jesus was readied and sent by the Father on his mission, so we are to ready and send our children on mission. Jesus himself said, as the Father sent me, so now I'm sending you. And that advice really challenged us to frame our parenting in the gospel, or at least to be thinking through the sentness of Jesus for me, so now I'm sending my children out for whoever you they're called to. Jim Elliott, the famous missionary who lost his life in South America, when he told his parents that he was called to be a missionary in South America, they thought he was a fool, they thought he was an idiot, and so he wrote them a letter, and he used Psalm 127, and he said, what are arrows for but for drawing back and firing at the enemy? And so let me encourage you, you are shooting me directly at the target for which I was made. Amazing, right? But yet, as I mentioned earlier, gospel parenting is founded on gospel marriage. And so what is marriage for, right? Ephesians 5 tells us marriage exists to illustrate the gospel for the world. As wives submit to their husbands in the same way they do to God himself, look there at Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. As the wives do that and as husbands love their wives and give their lives for their wives, lives for your wives, okay? Easy to remember, it rhymes. The world, when that happens, sees how Jesus and his church are relating to each other, but it's actually the verse prior to that that clues you in on how you get empowered for your role in marriage as a husband or as a wife. It's only when both the husband and the wife, Paul says it there, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's only when both husband and wife are worshiping, revering, living in awe of Jesus himself, when they're looking to Jesus Christ himself, the suffering servant, that's when they can fulfill their roles. Because submission to one another means mutual sacrifice through mutual fulfillment. All, what does he say? All real life-changing Love is substitutionary sacrifice. So husbands, you must be substitutionarily sacrificing yourself for your wife. Wives, you must be substitutionarily sacrificing yourself for your husband. The problem arises when we approach marriage like a consumer. You fulfill my needs, I'll fulfill yours if I feel like it. Right? When our spouse doesn't measure up, 
When things start to go south, right, grudges can occur, bitterness can spring root and develop, passive-aggressive comments can begin to fill a home, right? We can start to see them, that is, the spouse, as the big problem. But if the gospel says, I'm so sinful Jesus had to come, but I'm so loved Jesus wanted to come, then how can either spouse claim to be less of a sinner than the other? If each spouse says, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, then you are on your way to gospel fluency. And as you become more fluent in that, then parenting and everything else will follow. None of it's easy. Don't hear me up here claiming that, you know, this is that simple. Like Rosetta Stone learning Spanish or something. Even that's not easy. But developing fluency in the gospel in these areas, definitely not easy. And yet it is the work that is in front of us. Lastly, so fluency in embracing our limits and figuring out where God is calling us, what to, what to say yes, what to say no to, all that kind of stuff. Fluency in our marriages and parenting. Lastly, fluency in our relational conflict. One of the best ways to gauge a person's gospel fluency is to ask them this question. Tell me uh, the last time, tell me about the last time you sought forgiveness from someone. It's a great, man, it's a great diagnostic. I mean, ask yourself, when's the last time that happened? Because forgiveness failures are a normal part of life. And that brings me to Genesis. So if you look at this passage from Genesis, one of the most famous stories about forgiveness in all the Bible is Genesis 50, the story of uh, Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. But in verse 19 of that, uh, it's a longer paragraph, kind of in the middle of the page there, Joseph asks a question, and it's directly related to the concern of his brothers. What is the concern of his brothers in verse 15? When they saw that their father was dead, they were expecting what? Vengeance, repayment, revenge, retribution, right? They are expecting from Joseph a response like they would have had. And we've all had similar experiences where we have been either the avenger, the avenger, and not the movie Avengers, you know, but like real avengers in a relationship or someone has been the avenger against us. Now, you may not have experienced betrayal or being thrown in a pit, left for dead, and eventually sold into slavery. I mean, anybody? Yeah, okay. I mean, most of us probably haven't been there. But Joseph had been there. And remember, Joseph is a sinner, like you and I. He's not a God-man. The only God-man was Jesus himself. So Joseph is in a position to carry out payback or retribution, and yet he doesn't. So that may not have been your experience, but maybe it's a subtle jab or a casual put-down That someone you know, maybe they said it in a conversation. Maybe they've said it numerous times in a conversation. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a person you see on a regular basis, like at church. And every time you see them, your mind starts to replay the the slights and the put-downs or the passive-aggressive comment. Or maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe it's your mind begins to replay a betrayal by someone you thought was a close friend or replay the relentless gossiping that you have endured or experienced or come to find out about. Well, the case study of Joseph, 
as well as these passages from Jesus, man, they are immensely helpful because they show us, okay, where does the power come from? How do we begin to behave like that? Well, if you go back to the text in Genesis 50, Joseph is fluent in forgiveness. In fact, in verse 17, if you look there in that paragraph, it says, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And that's the first time the word is explicitly seen in the Bible. And it's in the context of a pretty terrible thing. So Joseph did three things. Verse 19, he had humility. He says, am I God? Often what keeps us from forgiving is remembering that we are fellow sinners. We're not God the judge. He had humility. Verse 20, he had joy. He says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. For Joseph, the goodness of God was more real and powerful to him than the evil that had been done to him. Verse 21, he seeks to bless his brothers. He doesn't repay evil with evil. He overcomes evil with good. Look what he says there. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So he, he doesn't... He doesn't pretend that their uh, trespass, that their sin against him was, uh, you know, not that big of a deal. He calls it evil. But he identifies with them as a fellow sinner. He says, am I in the place of God? I'm no different than you. And so he releases them from liability. He absorbs the debt himself. He doesn't seek revenge and pay them back. In fact, he says, I want to provide for you. I want to bless you. And then he seeks to reconcile with them rather than breaking off the relationship forever. It's not printed for you, but this is not the end of the book of Genesis. There's a few more verses uh, at the end of the book there. And Joseph lives to be 110 years old. We think he may have been in his 50s when this happened. And the rest of the book is just a short paragraph that says his brothers and their families moved to Egypt and they uh, live kind of happily ever after, if you will. And yet, do you think that there was any time in the coming 60 or so years before he died that in seeing his brothers day in and day out, he wasn't tempted to replay the sin? He wasn't tempted to replay the betrayal, the leaving him for dead, the selling him into slavery? And yet, he chose, he chose to forgive Tim Keller in his book on forgiveness says that most of the time forgiveness is granted before it's felt. Almost always granted before it's felt. Jesus in his teaching, which is the last two paragraphs there on your insert, his teaching is pretty shocking because he refuses to grant that there is a limit to forgiveness. He gets asked by Peter, Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven I mean, the rabbis say three, three strikes, you're out. No more forgiveness needed. I'm going to go with seven. Isn't, what do you think? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And it's, it's kind of hard. 77 times gets lost in translation. But in essence, what he's saying is, it is a complete amount multiplied by itself. Better yet, in Luke 17, he says, if someone sins against you, the same person, the same sin, the same day, and every time they say, please forgive me, what does verse 4 say? You must forgive him 
it makes sense, and it should make it, it should be you and I should read that, and we should feel immediately the same way these guys felt, which is in verse five. They say what? It's the very last thing there on the sheet. Oh, increase our faith, right? Man, do we need more faith? See, this story of Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers is pointing us to Jesus, who God uses for ultimate salvation, ultimate provision, ultimate good. That word in verse 17, Genesis 50, verse 17, the word in Hebrew means this, to send the sin away so that the forgiver no longer counts it against the perpetrator. And so if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian or maybe you're investigating Christianity or you're new to Christianity and you're wondering, where in the world do I get the resources? Where do I get the emotional uh, well-being or, 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 or uh, you know, grit to forgive others who've hurt me or how I, can, uh, how, how I can forgive them or how I can encourage them to forgive someone else? or how I can even forgive myself, you've got to know there's a vertical aspect to God's forgiving grace which changes you on the inside and then moves you horizontally to be a person of grace and forgiveness toward others because the gospel is my sins were sent away into Jesus. He absorbed them, so they're no longer counted against me. And the more fluent in rehearsing that, the more fluent in forgiveness I'll be because only the gospel gives you the resources to absorb the debt yourself when you're sinned against. Only the gospel gives me the resources to not count your sins against you, but to treat you as God has treated me in Jesus and to not act toward you on the basis of your sins. It doesn't mean I just wipe them from my memory bank. We can't do that as human beings. It's impossible. But what forgiveness does do, what the gospel does allow for, is for me to increasingly not act toward you on the basis of your sins. When debts are created, someone has to pay, and repeated sins create larger and larger debts. And so it's more like a credit card bill that you've got to pay down over time. You make small payments here and there, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Every time we choose to inwardly pay that debt down ourselves, just a little bit here, a little bit there, whenever you see that person that's hurt you, whenever you hear the person's name brought up, whenever you have the opportunity to boast to other people about how I would never treat someone the way so-and-so treated me, whenever you have a chance to stop and to pay the debt yourself. You're practicing forgiveness. You're making small payments over time. And only a Christian can do that because only the gospel gives you the resources to do that. Last thing is this. It's a quote uh, from uh, Tim Keller's book on forgiveness where I want to finish. He says, before love is something that we can give, it is someone we receive You learn to love by first experiencing love and then passing it on. You will only become a patient person if you see someone saving you through the costliest patience and forgiving you even as he died, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as that becomes more and more real to you, that is what can change you. It's what will change you. And when it changes you, you'll change the places that you live and work and play. And if we, as a body, are being changed by those realities, then we'll change our city because there will be something truly different. So let's pray. 
and ask that God would uh, make us, as we've been saying, fluent in the gospel so that we can be for uh, the city. Lord Jesus, we thank you that it was through the costliest patience and forgiveness that you died to save us, that you asked for forgiveness for us even as we were nailing you to the cross. Thank you that our sins are no longer counted against you, or excuse me, against us, but against you, that you absorbed the debt yourself. So now you are increasingly making us into people who can do the same, like Joseph, who can love our spouses and our children for them and not for us, who can say no and who embrace the limitedness of how you've made us. Oh, Father, make these things more and more true and real to us so that our fluency would lead to flourishing in our lives and in the lives of those around us, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, Amen. Aren't you glad the service doesn't end with me saying, good luck, have fun, you know, have a nice week. No, it ends with the benediction for a reason, because as you go out into whatever it is you face and the recognition that, man, I've got to apply the gospel in this situation, that situation, this relationship, that relationship, you realize, oh man, increase my faith, increase my faith. And this is the promise as you go, he goes with you, right? He, 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 he sends you out with his blessing and the promise of his presence and power. So grab hold of this, receive this as you go, and happy Mother's Day. Have a great uh, rest of your day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.